New writing. New writing. New writing. New writing. You're listening to a podcast by New Writing North. This episode of the New Writing North podcast was recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. In this episode, poet, author, and playwright Owen Shears talks to Professor Stephen Regan about The Green Hollow, his moving and beautifully rendered film poem about the 1966 Aberfan mining disaster. Welcome to Durham Book Festival. Another great book festival get, gets underway. Every, every year it just gets stronger and stronger, and it, it's so good to see so much poetry as well. And uh, Wales, as you know, has produced many fine writers, and one of them is here with us this morning. It's a really great pleasure to welcome Owen Shears. Owen's a well-known poet, novelist, dramatist, essayist as well. Uh, his collection of poems, Skirred Hill, is a bestseller, and it's still on the GCSE syllabus. And in fact, one of our students has just been into talk to Owen and she, she was delighted because she studied his work at, at school, gets to meet him in, in person now. He's the author of the verse drama Pink Mist, which won the Hay Festival Poetry Medal and the Wales Book of the Year Award. He's also the author, as uh, many of you will know, of The Poet's Guide to Britain. Some of you might have seen that on BBC Four. It was, it was televised and I was catching up with a little bit of it on YouTube recently. But just so you know what we're doing this morning, we thought we'd do this in three sections. We thought Owen and I would just talk a little bit about his, his work and about work in progress. Then Owen will read from the Green Hollow. This is the work we're going to concentrate on today. And then we'll hand it over to you and hope that you have comments and questions for the final 15 or 20 minutes. Does that sound okay? That's a comfortable, comfortable arrangement for us. So The Green Hollow was written to mark the 50th anniversary of the Aberfan disaster, when the waste tipped from a coal mine collapsed on a school and near, nearby houses, killing 144 people. I'm old enough to remember that, and I'm sure many of you are, and the devastating scenes um, on television broadcasts. Fifty years later, it's obviously still a huge and difficult subject for any writer to contemplate. Now, Owen, you obviously <coughs> felt it was a, a subject that you wanted to take on, you needed to take on at some point. So can you tell us how it came about? Sure, of course. Um, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, it came about via BBC Wales, who approached me with the very open question of asking, would I be interested in writing, in writing something about Aberfan? Um, the producer who approached me had seen Pink Miss, so she'd seen this former verse drama that, that I had first worked in for radio and had then gone onto the stage. And I think that as soon as she asked me, and in her question, we were both thinking of that sort of a territory, because what was very clear from the early conversations with the uh, community um, in um, Aberfan was that you know, nobody wanted a straight drama, a straight sort of reconstruction, and we knew that there would be many documentaries about it. Um, being the 50th anniversary, it was a very specific kind of a universe, uh, um, um, anniversary in that people acknowledged that 
it had to be marked, but that it was also potentially an opportunity for a kind of letting go as well. Um, and so it wasn't something that I said yes to straight away. Uh, I mean, as you've um, indicated, it, it's, it's a huge uh, subject. It, it occupies a unique place, not just in the national consciousness of Wales, but actually in the wider world, in the way that it intersected with, with world news in a way that it's a story that is strangely shared across borders. Um, so I went away and thought about it for a long time. And um, in the end, I said yes, though, because I think for two reasons. One, because what can so often happen with those kind of narratives, as you know, is that they can become very broad and somewhat blunt. And the bit of early research I did made me realize that there was a lot more that I wanted to draw out, especially about what kind of a place was Aberfan in the 60s and what was there actually you know, pre-coal mining um, at all. But really, the main reason I took it on was that I felt that there was a, a, an urgent, um, a contemporary resonance in this story in the story of what can happen when a community is allowed to be run by a corporation, it felt that this was still something that we very much need yeah. to, to talk about. So um, I said yes, and from the get-go, really, the idea was to start with voice and with voices and to begin with interviewing uh, uh, survivors and parents and uh, uh, rescuers who were there 50 years ago. Mm. Were there things you discovered in the course of doing the research, things that surprised you, think, things that troubled you, things that were unexpected, maybe? Yeah, there was, there was a lot, actually. Um, on the positive side, um, you know, I would start by asking everyone, you know, just simply, what was Aberfan like in the 60s? And the picture that emerged was of these extraordinary communities. I mean, almost utopian in some ways. I mean, yes, there was heavy... It was heavy industry and it was dangerous and it was dirty, but there was full employment. The high street was buzzing. Like everyone would start by saying, well, there were three bakers and three butchers and two, this, you know. And there was just, you've got this sense of also a cultural vibrancy. You know, two cinemas. I mean, this is a small village. Theatre groups, bands. Mm. Um, and a, obviously a very strong sense of a community. Um, so that was extraordinary mm. to learn about that. At the other end of the scale, probably, I mean, I mean, obviously, there was a lot of uh, shocking and very difficult first-hand witness that I had to sit there and I had, had to hear about. I'd always known about the scandal of um, and no one in the um, NCB being uh, uh, convicted or resigning or sacked, um, even though there was clear evidence that everyone knew that there was a spring under tip number seven, which was the tip that collapsed. But probably the most shocking thing I came across was in Merthyr Tydfil Library was um, a set of letters over a period of six years, all from the same council engineer. And they all had the same subject line, which was the danger of tipping slurry behind Pankglass School. And it was when I, when I learned the extent to which this danger was known and it had been signalled and then ignored. That was extraordinary in the wake of so many of those interviews. That, that must have prompted some anger. One of, one of the things I was impressed by, I have to say, re reading The Green Hollow was that taking on a work of this kind could, could prompt you to an overwhelming kind of, 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 of anger, um, but you, mm. you, you, you step back from that. And the, and the other thing, of course, is it, it's verse. I'm so struck listening to these voices that Owen does so well, people in, in conversation, and then every now and again, there's a, there's a rhyme. Mm. Now, I realize this, this is verse. It's not 
it's not prose. So tell us a little bit about the process of how you, how, how you do this and you maintain rhyme and, and rhythm, but you don't, you don't make those, those rhymes too prominent. It does sound like actual speech, and yet mm. maybe, maybe it's slightly heightened. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think heightened is, is the perfect word, and that's kind of the negotiation that you're always going for. You want a sense of poetry, and I mean literally sense. So when, when this was broadcast, um, I had quite a few people saying, there's something going on with the language, isn't there? And I said, yeah, that's perfect. There's something going on with the language. That's all that you need to know. But yeah, essentially, it's a series of uh, dramatic monologues underpinned by, by rhyme and lots of half rhyme and lots of internal rhyme, um, but most importantly, rhythm. And I should say that this was a big experiment for me, taking this form um, onto TV, where it has to exist in a very different narrative landscape, where there tend to be longer pauses, so those rhymes have to survive that bit longer. Um, but it's the rhythm that I think it becomes essential in terms of keeping this heightened voice and these composite characters, who, mm. many of whom are very much imagined, uh, keeping them within calling distance of those original interviews. And that's the kind of testing on the ear that you're doing all the way through. But for me, the form is, abs is absolutely vital. Um, and it kind of allows what you were talking about, this lyrical distance. It allows a sense of restrained emotion, actually. I think much more so than if you entered prose. So yes, when I read those letters, I was incandescent with anger and I wept. Mm. And I, I cried a lot over the seven months of doing this research. But there's something about the form that is a protection for me mm. and also about the whole endeavour that sort of reminds you it's not, it's not my place to be angry. It's my place to be a conduit for the, these voices, to channel, to tell the story of other people's anger if it's there. And you, you give it a structure. Those of you who know the book will be familiar with this, but just to say that it has three sections, and the first part one is focused very much on the, on the children. It's morning uh, before school starts, and there's a young boy, Thomas Davies, um, getting ready. Uh, part two is, is the rescue. It, it, it moves into the rescue operation. Part three is sub survivors, and it's focused on 2000 and 16 and mm. Owen uses those three sections really to to give the whole work a particular kind of structure how how did that structure come about and how did you envisage it working because you, you you're shifting across time as well aren't yes you? yeah and I suppose that's important to mention I mean I said that the whole the whole thing began with ideas of voice so my very first idea was literally a shape which was a young boy a single boy's voice, or, or a girl's, at the time I didn't know, but a child's voice in 1966, so growing to a climax of 144 voices, the number of people who died, before tapering to a single child's voice in uh, uh, 2016. And then, because I wanted people, especially who were survivors, to move between their childhood voices and their adult voices, and this is kind of represented in here by um, a lightening and um, um, a darkening of the text, because you've got all of this temporal shifting, it was actually very useful to have a very firm structure of essentially before, during, and after, right. you know, which is the essential structure of the um, um, an event-based story. And that enables me to, I hope, to have a lot more shifting within that. I should say that, on a practical note, it also arose through uh, conversations with the filmmaker, Pitt Broughton, because although she's incredibly generous and she amazingly says to me, which is a very brave thing for a, a filmmaker to say, she says, 
Just think about the words and the voices. Don't worry about the images. So what I give her is part blessing, but a, a much larger curse, really. Um, but, um, but she also, at the same time, needs to have a structure so that she can have a visual difference across the film. Um, and, yeah, and it works also in a way that there is a distinction with that second part that I wanted the moment of the disaster itself um, to be voiced almost entirely by, by outsiders. Because in a way, it's us, it's the outsiders who have kind of shaped how that disaster sits within Abervan. Mm. If a lot of people within Abervan, yes, it's part of the history, but when they say Abervan, they see a village. When we sit and say Abervan, we see something else entirely. Mm. Um, so it, it, it was kind of helpful in, in that respect as well. Yeah. So there's a tragedy on a massive human scale that you focus deliberately on ch children, on, on a small number of mm. people and a small number of families. Are there characters you based on anyone you knew or met or read about, or, or, or were they largely invented? They really are. The characters in the first, who sort of bridge the first and the third part, so, you know, children, you know, then and adults now, um, or the parents, are very much composite uh, characters. And I suppose one of the things that I've become interested in in this form is its uh, potential for embodying the choral through individual voices. Because I did seven months of interviews, so you've got, you know, sort of 20 people fueling a single character. Um, so how I often describe it is that you do this weight of research and then you imagine into it. And that research kind of you know, gives you a very strong sounding board, so you can sort of tell when you've gone, you've gone wrong. Um, in the second section, that is a bit different. The accounts of the rescuers, uh, I decided to stay very close to their accounts, so I've given them their real names. And that's a slightly different process. What you read there is, is, is what happened, there's a lot of their language, a lot of their phrasing, and that really was about heightening and giving shape to it. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a slight sort of different approach to character between the three parts as well. Without in any way undermining the originality of Owen's work, I have to say, I, I, I kept being reminded of, of, of Under Milk Wood. I was thinking, what, what models are there? What's, what's mm. been done before at the level of verse drama? But, of course, that was written for radio. But was, it, was that something you had in mind because characters step forward and, 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 and speak, they often come together in a choral mm -hmm. kind of, of way. You've got a small community where yep. people know each mm -hmm. other. Was, was that on your mind at, at I any think point? You can't write a play for voices and not be aware of a certain other short Welsh poet, uh, <laughs> you know, who I think wrote one as well, called, sorry. Um, so, I, you know, but then again, you know, that has precedence, you know, the Spoon River anthology, that kind of thing, it, you know, and actually um, a, a various other books. If you, if you go digging around, you know, Thomas was already picking up on an existing tradition of a village speaking. And that's why I did want the subtitle for this to be it's a slightly audacious title and perhaps a bit um, over-ambitious, but a poem in the voice of Abba Van. Because, um, of course, I'm always very careful to say, I, when I talk about the uh, community in Abba Van, every town, every village has many communities. And there were some people who wanted to talk to me about this, and, of course, lots of people who would rather not. But, yes, so that was in my mind. Um, but probably more so when I wrote Pink Mist, because that was written for radio. Um, and more so with the most recent outing of this form, 
was another film poem that I made about the NHS, which very obviously has a first and a second voice, um, a porter and um, a cleaner um, in this hospital. So it's always there, um, I think, and you know, it can't sort of fail to not be. Mm. Um, One of the yeah. things I noticed about the way you fixed this in 1966 was that other things are going on at an international level. World Cup football, yeah. um, for, for instance, but also the moon landings. And the two boys at the beginning get very excited because Russian and American space exploration is going on and they're talking about astronauts. And I, I wondered if there was something symbolic in that as, as well, because you mentioned it at the beginning and the final line of the work is, is young Thomas saying, someone's on the moon, there's a man on, there's a man on the moon. Now, is, is, that, is that going up and that ascent, a looking upward and a, and, and a counter to the dark going down, the descent into the earth? Yeah, certainly, in that opening scene, that's what I was kind of, um, that's what I was partly reaching for, the, the idea that Thomas's father has been down deep under the ground all night and he's there looking at this harvest moon, you know, through the window, and so you're stretched like that. But it's also to talk about the extraordinary advances in technology and science that were happening at this time, um, just to really accentuate mm. the degree to what happened in Aberfan was totally unnecessary and was archaic um, and that much more brutal and cruel mm. because of that, because this was 1966. Yeah. There were, yeah. This was an advancing society. It was also, though, because when I was in Merthyr Library, I got out all of the local papers because I wanted to know, actually, you know, mm. what were the sporting teams that these boys would have been interested in and what would the girls have been doing and what would, you know, the parents have been involved in. And so it was interesting for me to learn that, you know, at that time, it, it wasn't rugby in Merthyr. It was very much football and it was boxing and the local heroes were the boxers. <laughs> but to place Aberfan within a world, because that's something else that happens when any, I think, when any uh, community is, is, is at the centre of a disaster, is that... The disaster occupies everything. And it's, you know, if there's a central purpose for this kind of work, it's about humanising, isn't it? And it's about finding the nuance and the human detail and peeling away all of those unhelpfully sort of distancing aspects of when we talk about a disaster. Yeah. Great. Well, before we ask you to read on, maybe you'll say something about the title, which is The, the, the Green Hollow. I mean, that's the, the English version of Pan Glass, isn't it? But is, is, is The Green Hollow there? As a, as, a, as a reminder of some recovery and, 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 and some re renewal, perhaps? Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, all the way through this, it's, it sounds, I think maybe it was an impossible task, but there was a lot of conversation and encouragement to try and find, not exactly light, but some lightness somewhere, because it, with that concept of some kind of a letting go. And, uh, you know, and as I said, I think that's almost Im impossible to do. But... I was thinking about Pant Glass School, which was the school that was covered by uh, tip number seven. And uh, glass is a very interesting word in Welsh in, in that it's, it means blue as a colour, unless you're talking about nature, in which case it means green. So, <laughs> um, so the green hollow, as soon as I thought about the idea of the green hollow, I thought of you know, grief as a hollow, and uh, as this evergreen hollow, because these children mm. were seven, eight, you know, nine, and in a way, this is a communal grief that will be forever young. There is literally a hollow in that community that, mm. you know, that lost their children. Mm. You know, Laurie Lee wrote a piece that calls it The Village That Lost Its Children. Mm. Um, um, but I hope also that sense of green shoots of yeah. 
some kind of recovery, something growing out of the awfulness of it all. So, so I hope, yeah, that, that's what you always want a title to be, hopefully, is sort of many different doors into a piece of work. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. terrific. Well, he's given us such an eloquent account of the work. I think it's time to hear some selections, and I think you'll, you'll read from each of the three yeah. sections on. Please, yeah. go ahead. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'll start to begin at the beginning, as that other short Welsh poet once said. Um, <laughs> I mentioned that I always wanted this to start with a single child's voice, and that is how the book opens. The film ended, ended up starting slightly differently, but that's how the book opens. So this is the voice of Thomas, uh, and then we hear from Di, his father, in 1966, and then just briefly at the end, uh, Di, uh, 50 years later. And I'll try to make it clear when he has that shift. And the only thing you need to know is that the local word for the drams that used to carry the coal waste up onto the tips was called journeys. The journeys will be starting soon. You can't see them down here in the street, but once they're up and running, there sounds all through the village. Last thing I hear before going to sleep, and first thing too, just after I wake. Or when we're playing down the river or in school on a break, rumble they do and clang, metal wheels on metal tracks, drams they call them too, carrying the spoil and the shale from down by the pit, across the black bridge, and all the way up to the top of the tip, number seven, that's the one they're going to know. Even if you were there, though, on the mountain, I mean, you'd still only hear them, wouldn't see them, not till the cranes at least, not with this fog like a cloud in the street. It's dark, but I can still tell it's thick. The way the streetlights blur out and how I can't see the ridge. If I could, that would be darker again, like ink spilt on ink. And above it, just the moon. A harvest one in a week or two. Will, his older brother, says they'll be putting a man on it soon. He means the Americans, but I don't know. I think the Russians might get there first. They're launching Luna 12 tomorrow. My dad told me about it. Showed me a picture, like a spinning top it is, with spikes all over. Putting it into orbit if they can, that's what Dad said. Like a moon for a moon, but made by man. <laughs> Mad about science, my Thomas. Always following them rockets, which is fine by me. Much better by far, he's looking up there to the darkness of space than down to the blackness of this bloody place. What still haunts me the most is how it was staring us in the face. Not just the thing itself, but even the word tip, pit, turned inside out, wrong way round, which is how it was, of course. I was the one meant to be in danger. It was miners who died for coal, hundreds each year, us in that daytime night, not our children above ground, learning in the light. Um, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to, to drill back in, in a way um, to the deeper history of Aberfan. Um, and so this is a section where people talk about what was there pre-mining and how mining came into the valley. And it moves through a few voices. So there's Edna, who's a farm woman on the hill. Then um, Mavanwi, who is uh, Thomas's mother. Um, and then Di, um, uh, uh, who finishes off this piece by talking about Thomas again. But Edna first. Wasn't always like this, of course. Summer grazing, that's what brought the first people here. Good land, sheltered spot, fed by six streams at least. It's all still here, in a way, in the names, the streets. Havoid Tanglois, the summer place of Tanglois. 
But in Gorlai, hill of light, pant glass, the green hollow, and still is, I suppose, though with kids now, not grass, and Abavan, of course, the mouth of the van, the biggest of those streams feeding the taff. It was the steam coal what changed all that, and John Nixon. He's still here too, other side of the taff. Nixonville, it's called, though far as I can see. Whole place is that man's. I mean, was him who started the pit, and the pit what made Abavan. From up north he was, Newcastle way. Saw Merthyr coal burned on the Thames one day and couldn't believe it. No smoke in the coal. Never seen that before. So he came down here looking for more. Went to Mrs. Thomas, he did, up at the Grieg. There she was, sitting in her hut at the mouth of the shaft, a basket by her head for the cash, girls sorting by hand outside. 150 tons a day she was selling, but no more. That's what she told Nixon. She reckoned she'd taken too much already out from under the valley's floor. But Nixon, well, he was modern. Didn't understand the words too much. So he sunk his own. The deepest so far, then worked his way south from navigation to deep Dufferin to here, Merthyr Vale. He'd proved it, see, that 10 hours of fire from Aberdeer was worth 12 at least from the Tyne. By the time I left school, there seemed no question. The war was over and my father, well, he was suffering from dust. So I went down, 20 years next month. Mrs. Thomas would turn, I bet, to think we're still digging it out. Generations down that pit. Not my boys, though. I'm working down there, so they won't. Will's heading for an apprentice at JJ's garage, and well, according to some, he's got a chance in the ring. And Thomas Bach, he's good with his hands, too, in a different way. Only nine, but plays the piano with both of them. Um, so this section is from the middle section, um, which is told from the point of view of the various rescuers and outsiders. Um, there was a moment in the piece where we, where we knew, and I certainly knew, that we had to take an audience and, um, or um, a reader into the, into the horrible and brutal truth of what happened um, at just once. But I suppose I should warn you that it is in this section that that happens. The first voice is the voice of Mansell, who was um, a medical student on his way to Abervan to attend his niece's christening um, and just happened to arrive there that morning. And so for a long time, along with the two local GPs, was the only medical staff on the site. Uh, he, he, he since actually went on to become the um, head of public health in Wales and has done lots of uh, research into um, inherited trauma. We then hear from Gwyneth, who was the uh, mayor's uh, secretary, um, before going on to Dave, who was um, a young bank clerk, and then finishing with Sam, who was the first journalist, um, a local journalist, the first journalist to appear. And in the middle of Dave's section, there's a brief conversation between a reporter and a miner, and the miner is Di, who we've heard from earlier. But starting with Mansell, who was the young medical student. I'd taken over with a shovel when a young man came over. We're into a classroom, he said. You'd better come through just in case. So I passed my tool to another and followed him into the ruins of that place. For years, I've had dreams because of what I saw. The classroom, it was like it had been shaken. Desks, chairs, a boulder, a clock angled where it fell. And there, up against the wall, no higher than your waist, 20 children, their master in front of them, his arms spread in protection, trying to save them all. 
He was a big man, but what could he have done? One teacher against a mountain. I could see behind him their faces, their mouths still open as if they'd been caught mid-song, except you could tell it wasn't a song those mouths had been making, all crammed as they were with the same black note of shale, slurry and grit, and their eyes as well. I'd never seen a thing so wrong. There was nothing to be done. Around 11, we assembled in the chamber to be informed of the plans. We're setting up mortuaries, they said, wherever we can. We were stunned, numb, but of course had to carry on. There was so much to be done. At around four, the women as well as the men were asked to go to Abervan. Once there, we gathered in a hall, unsure what would happen. But then John Beale, the director of education, he came in, school registers, under his arm. He wanted to account for the children, so began to read out their names, but their sound on the air, what it conjured, was too much for him. He broke down. And anyway, nobody knew who had survived and who had not, so each of the women was given a street and told to go down it from door to door, asking each family a single question against the grain of natural law. I was 22. Each time I knocked, I prayed, the answer would be, yes, he's here, or yes, she's asleep upstairs, but of course, all too often it wasn't. I'd write down the name or the names, the ages, seven, eight, nine, we'd talk if they wanted. Then they'd close their door softly, the hand of a husband or wife on their shoulder, and I'd carry on with my list of numbers, names, and ages, willing for it not to grow any longer. As the news filtered into the world, so the world filtered back to us. Factories emptied across Wales. Steelworkers from Port Talbot, Hoover down in Merthyr, schoolboys from a valley over, and individuals too, a farmer from Brecon, an accountant from Cardiff, and many others from further. And of course, the TV crews, the journalists, first from Wales, then the UK, then France, Germany, all over. They set up at the Mac, filmed us working, the slide, the tips, the chimneys still smoking through the black. I heard one reporter ask a miner, they say you'll dig into the night, is that true? My boy's in there somewhere, I'll dig all night if I have to. At some point, the NCB rescue teams came, like the cavalry they were, in their yellow jackets and hats. Then the army digging trenches, clearing stormwater. From all over the country, feather pumps and tenders. No one else would be pulled out alive not from the houses nor the school, but still, all you could hear was the sound of digging tools and occasionally quiet crying, because now there was other work to do, supporting the parents at Bethania Chapel, small bodies under blankets on every pew as they went in to identify their children, sometimes by face, but often just a piece of cloth, a pair of shoes. Somehow, throughout it all, the workers were fed, watered, soup and bread from the Salvation Army, the Civil Defence, even at one point, a plate of wedding cake. But then that's what happens, isn't it? The world ruptures and we offer what we can. And that's what happened that night to a woman and man. People gave their strength, their sympathy, offered up for Abba Van. When the day started fading, they brought in arc lights powered by canisters of gas. Uh, towers were erected from which they shone across that whole expanse of ruin and slurry and black. Everyone was covered in muck, 
me included. I'd worn my best suit to go and see John Beale, but now you'd have thought I'd spent the day down the pit, but we hadn't. It had come to us. Everyone knew that now. And when it did, like some heartless Pied Piper, it harvested the best of that town. It was time for me to go. The dusk was giving to night. I wanted to see my wife. The Merthyr to Cardiff line had been cut, so I caught a bus. I was the only one on it, and like that, held in the brightness of its upper deck, I travelled home alone through the darkness, being sick at my feet as it went. From what, I can't say. Exhaustion, sadness, who knows? The body has its ways of telling when we've had too much. But as the bus sailed on down that dark valley, with me, a dirty grain in its light, even with my eyes closed, being sick, I couldn't help seeing one specific sight. The curtains of a house in a short street I'd passed earlier that day. They were closed, which in Wales, not at night, means only one thing, a house where the seeds of death have been sown. I walked on, but as I did, I looked down the rest of that row, which is when I saw the curtains. They were drawn in every window. I'll just finish with a very short extract from the third part. This is in the voice of Anne, who was um, a schoolgirl um, in the school in 1966, and um, who uh, survived. And there are uh, two short speeches. In the first, she talks about when um, a group of the survivors finally got together to talk about it many, many years later. And then in her last speech, um, she talks about Tom, who is, is her grandson. And like the Thomas we heard about from, at the start, is mad into science as well. So this is Anne. It was years later when we were adults that we all finally talked about it. Not just those who'd been pupils in the school, but the teachers too. Looking back, they were so young as well, just NQTs, 22, 23. We got in touch, said, right, let's do this. Asked each other questions, shared our stories, and got really drunk as we did, as if it was the only way we could let everything out. Since then, I'd say, it's been better. All of us still carry the scars, of course, and I couldn't help notice that none of us, when we met, had held down relationships, either never married or had then divorced. We'd mostly been successful, though. A barrister, a writer, an accountant, a mayor, as if having survived that collapsing pile, we'd made a pact with ourselves to make the living we'd been given worthwhile. The way I see it more and more is that we're all carbon, aren't we? At least that's what Tom keeps telling me. And what happened here? It was the most terrible weight, the worst you can imagine, a weight on lives, families, the community, the town. But what happens to carbon under pressure if you keep pressing down? Well, at first you get coal, a darkness that burns, but keep pressing long and hard enough and some of that coal turns diamond and some of that darkness light. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we're all diamonds here, of course I'm not, but I do think that when so many have felt the same pressure at exactly the same time, then sometimes in places we're pushed through till we shine. An unexpected brightness made both of that darkness and that sharing of weight, its source buried under the years, but there, deeply rooted in our memories, a day, a date. Thank you very much, dear Thank you.
very powerful and, 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 and moving on. It must be hard um, even for you as author to, 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 to read that. It is, it is, and you can probably tell. Um, yeah, I, I still find it very difficult. Mm. And um, the project as a whole was, uh, it, it was by far the most psychologically and emotionally taxing mm. work that I've ever been in, involved in. Uh, and, and I think for a, a period afterwards, actually, I couldn't read it. Um, because I suppose even though I've created composite characters and I've moved away, when I do, I can't help but see the people that, that I spoke mm. to. Yeah. There must be times when you think no words can adequately represent that, 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 that experience. And when you read the section from the young medical student, it was interesting you had him describe it as a dream. And I, I, when, when I read the, the, the book, one of the pieces that shocked me most was that image of the children against the wall, you said, with the, mm. the teacher with his arms held out. And there's something surreal. You know, sometimes you need surre surrealism, you need something beyond the real mm. to do justice to the, to, 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 to mm. the shock. Were, were, were there times when you just felt words, language can't, can't capture this? All the time, all the time. I mean, it was my greatest fear. I mean, all the way through writing this, I would quite often stop and think, what am I doing? And the great risk of emotional exploitation as well. Um, uh, yeah, and I guess I've never felt so acutely both the miracle of the 26 letters of the English alphabet and the complete inadequacy of language. Um, but that's where, again, the form and those original conversations are a protection and a source of solace. Because you think, if these people have... And it's not easy to sit down and have a writer ask you to hand-hold them through their experience. And everyone I sat down with said, I'm fine, it's 50 years now, I'm fine. And, and everyone cried. Mm. Um, but there is a protection in those voices and in the bravery of their memory and of their witness. And, I mean, the first time the film was screened, it was in, Ab it, it was in Abervan. When I wrote this, we sent it to everyone that I'd spoken to, and it's very important that they saw it first. And with, there's a group uh, called the Young Wives uh, uh, Club, which is mostly made up of uh, mothers who had lost children. Um, when I met them, the average age was around 70, 80. And it, well, actually, I'm older, 75, 80. Um, and they just voted to remove the word young from their title. Um, and they are the most incredible uh, group of women, the most uh, uh, life-affirming group that I've ever met. Um, but the hardest thing I've ever done is, is that I went and I read the script to them. And I thought, you know, that's what they wanted. Mm. And if they were able to do that, then, you know, actually any kind of worries or concerns I had suddenly sort of shrank away in, into the distance. Mm. Before I turn this over to the audience, I want to introduce my very good friend and colleague, Professor Douglas Davis, who works in the Department of Theology and Religion. And as, as well as having a special research interest in, in death and mourning, uh, it just so happens that Douglas grew up very close to Abervan, one of, one of the villages mentioned, in fact, in the, in the Green Hollow. So I, I, I was hoping very much that Douglas could be here, and I'd like to give Douglas the microphone for, first of all, maybe just to... <laughs> not, no, no pressure, Douglas. <laughs> but I, 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 know, I know that it's, it's an experience you were close to, Douglas, and perhaps if... Thanks very much. Well, first, 
I've got a cold at the moment, so I'll do my best. <laughs> <coughs> Thanks very much. I really loved reading it. Thanks for the book, Stephen. There's a marvellous line where they talk about the boys from Bedlinog. <laughs> boy from Bedlinog. Yeah. The boys from Bedlinog straight back to their motorbikes, winking through the window to take exactly. me away. That was you, wasn't well, it? <laughs> <laughs> Even my mother, who was from Bedlinog, rode a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in Bedlinog rode a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> Let's set it in context. I also picked up I, I, the, the under Milkwood thing, just was there. Mm -hmm. But I really liked, well, I liked a lot of it. Uh, you, you rehearse some of the lines that I thought were remarkable, and there's a lovely one where they're talking about the cold and slurry and stuff, and the muscle of it, mm. the visual appearance, the, the empathetic sense of the muscle of it. I thought that was remarkable. Thank you. In a way, I think, my dad was one of the guys who went to dig him out. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I would just come up to Durham in 66 as an undergraduate, so it was my very, I was a fresher. And, um, and I can understand, in a way, some of those conversations that you're having, but I can also understand something of the, the non-conversation. Oh, yeah. The 26 letters were. Because when I went home for the Christmas holiday, Dad took me over. We just walked around a bit. And there was one of those rooms mm. where you could just see hand marks on the wall. And he didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. And we never, ever did say anything, <coughs> etc. But I want to set this in a very interesting context because culturally in Britain just now, there's a film coming out, and I've not seen your film, mm. I'm going to have to have a look at that. But there's a film coming out on the um, Breivik murders of those poor children in Oslo. The film is oh. out before long. Yeah. And uh, one reason why th th this is really interesting, about, I asked him, I've done a lot on death stuff, and... Um, the year after the Oslo murders, the, the great city of Oslo um, had a day when it recollected mm. what had happened. Mm. And I was invited over. I think I was the only foreigner there. <coughs> and in a sense, that, 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 and you've alluded to this, the, the way in which you know you are um, a stranger within mm. a context. Mm. And yet we're all human beings together. And empathy is basic to being human. And I was really stuck to know how on earth to end a talk. In, it was in the, in the city hall and people, the kids, the politicians, the media people, you know, had all come together for a day. Which is very brave of a city and a community to mm. do, really. I mean, my respect for, for the Oslo folk is phenomenal. And it came to me, really, that what is happening, what was happening there, and I've written about it since. What I think has happened in, in Ambavan was essentially, and you alluded to it with the library and the NCB literature, mm. a cultural betrayal, mm. a radical cultural betrayal. And it struck me that the, the brave guy dressing up as a policeman and shooting up the kids, the, the NCB pretending it was okay mm. and killing them, mm. it struck me that radically, the radical equivalence was cultural betrayal. Mm. And the depth of that kind of concept is, is phenomenal. But then, and this is another reason why I loved your presentation this morning, and indeed the book, <coughs> excuse me, is the resurgence. Mm. Mm. The, the absolute resurgence. And to see that happening to some of the folk there in Oslo, when they all gather together, to sing a song that Breivik hated. 
what better way to judge a man, mm. to damn him actually, mm. than by singing gently. Mm. And uh, I'm sure they'll be you know, equivalent. But I just wanted to say thank you very much for um, bringing all sorts of, of, of memories back, but also catching this sort of determined but slightly understated emotional engagement of quite a few of those folk mm. in it all. I thought that was great. Oh, thank you, thank you. And thank you. it's interesting that you should mention song because as I'm sure you know, I mean, some of that resurgence was a real struggle in, in that um, the tips that were left around Aberfan, and they really did tower, they, they did tower, were judged to be safe and so that they weren't going to be taken away. And the community had to fight them to be taken away. So um, they formed um, the tip removal committee and in the end had to get quite militant. Literally took sacks of slurry down to the uh, Welsh uh, secretary's um, office and tipped them over his uh, steps and said, this is what killed our children. It was only at that point that he agreed to remove them. The cost of removing them was taken out of the Abervan relief fund, which was a further scar and a slur. And that was only paid back when New Labour came in in 97. But unfortunately, they paid back the original 150,000, not With what interest. it would be now. But, um, but the reason I mention all of that is that when the tips were removed, the men, and it did happen to be mostly men in that committee, realised that that coming together and having a focus was part of their healing and they didn't want it to stop. So they said, well, what should we do? And of course, they said, well, how about a choir? And they formed the Uniso in Male Voice Choir, and it's still the central pillar of that community, and they sing all over the world. They come up to the north of England a lot, actually, and they only ever sing for free, and they sing for charities. And several of their members said that we still see it as a way of saying thank you to all of those other communities, those other parts of the world that were aware of their story and that tried to help. So, again, the choral, the communal, um, has been an absolutely vital part of the resurgence. That's not to be roast-tinted about it. You go to Aberfan now and all of that area have had hit after hit after hit from the miners' strike and through Thatcherism, and it's still a, you know, a very, very, very poor area. And Aberfan High Street has gone from having those three butchers and three bakers to having barely anything. So the struggles are far from over, but as a resilient community, extraordinary. Yeah. There was one point in particular... One, one point, uh, which really struck me, and uh, you alluded to it, of uh, Tip and Pit. Mm. Mm. Because it struck me that both for the, the Oslo situation, in that sort of a betrayal, and in this situation, but especially in this one, certainly in my boyhood, and Berlin was a mining village, um, everything to do with the pit was one world, and the home was another world, mm. including swear language. <laughs> So a man who swore at home was not a good man, really. <laughs> no. But he would swear blue murder down below. <laughs> of course. And it struck me that, in one sense, what that muck was doing was bringing the underworld yeah. into the upworld, mm. so that it was a double abomination mm. in that sense. And I thought you just picked that up magnificently. No, D.H. Lawrence does it beautifully well, Douglas. That, that's mm. Sons and Lovers. And mm. yeah. I don't know if you, if you haven't read... Odor of Chrysanthemum, the, the, the greatest English short story, I think, D.H. Lawrence, it's, 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 it's there. There's a roaming mic, so please put your hand up and Joan will bring it to you. 
I found your talk very moving when you described the village. That was my village in County Durham, mm. exactly the same. Mm. And the culture uh, about the swearing, the men swore <laughs> like mad down the, the mine, but they wouldn't swear, and particularly not in front of women. And the other thing that touched me was about the councillors that had been writing in and saying, look, we're sending these letters, this something has to be done. There's so many parallels, really, with what's happening today, mm. um, where councillors write and fight and tell what's wrong in the community, and nobody listens. Mm. People don't listen. The inequalities yeah. in our communities, in the country that's going on now, is not unlike what was being experienced no. in Wales then. And Still, nobody listens. Yeah. Which, which part of County Durham? I live in Shotton, in, yeah. in County Durham. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I'm a county mm. councillor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and it's interesting that you make that point about other mining communities, because, of course, you know, you walk around Abervan now, and there are plaques from all over the world, and a lot of them are from, are from mining communities in South Africa and elsewhere. And if there was, you know, if there was any good or, or something that people could take some solace from that came out of this situation. A lot of people mentioned to me, they said, well, what the disaster in Abervan did do, that it radically changed the regulation over tipping across the world. And several people said to me, you know, we like to think that that saved lives. And it undoubtedly did. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was a very strong note in the conversations I had, that affinity with other mining communities. Yeah. I think there's a question. Se second row here. Hi, just to um, echo what the lady said there, such resonance mm -hmm. in the story that you've told um, to the people in County Durham particularly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the pits have long gone, but our scenery, our countryside, in many ways, is all covered, grassed, mm. slag heaps. Mm. And I drive past them every day between here and Chester Street mm. and wonder how many people actually know yeah. that that's what they were. And what's underneath. And yeah. what's underneath. But mm. that they're not like, you know, that the transformed is, is uplifting. But um, I just wanted to ask a couple of logistical questions, mm. if you don't mind. Um, I'm one of Stephen's students, so I sort of drill down a little bit. Um, how... Did you actually reach the people that you interviewed? You, you said you did six and seven months' mm. worth of interviews. So first question was, how did you go about um, reaching them and arranging all of that? And secondly, how long did it take, did you spend on the actual writing mm. after you'd done the research? Yeah, well, they're sort of, <laughs> they're two of the, the essential questions of this way of working, because it only works if you have, you know, a very privileged witness, a privileged access to these people. Um, and that's where actually the, the fact that this all began as a BBC Wales Commission, and I, you know, and I'm really impressed and pleased that the BBC were up for taking a punt on quite a risky form in a period of their history when they're not doing that as much as they once did. But because it came through them, and BBC Wales has a long relationship with Abravan, um, I had a researcher that was working with me, and we went to several, I guess, kind of, you know, community leaders. Um, um, an ex-mayor of Merthyr who lives in Abervan, um, the headmistress of the current school, various people, as um, certainly the Young Wives Club, um, 
as a way of finding an, an entree. Um, and we took our time about it, uh, partly because there have always been some people who are willing to talk and want to talk um, and have done over the last 50 years. And of course, we want to talk to them. But we also wanted to try to speak to people who had never spoken before. Obviously, not to force anyone, but to put that out there. That, um, and because of this way of working, because it's not about interviewing Bethan and then saying what Bethan said on the screen, because everyone's story fuels a general narrative, I think that made it more possible for people to open up. Because they knew everyone wants a more nuanced telling of what happened to be out there, but they don't necessarily want it to be trapped back to their personal experience. So it was, it was a, a slow process. And like I said, obviously lots of people you know, didn't want to talk to us, and that's completely understandable. But quite often, one conversation would lead to another, would lead to another, and, and would sort of open out um, in that way. So that's how we went about it. Um, in terms of the writing, how this form seems to work best is that there's a long distillation period over those interviews. And of course, you're always thinking, you've always got your, your antennae out over those, those conversations, um, particularly given this subject matter. You know, our daughter was only two at the time, so I quite often had to stop somewhere before going home. I had to have some kind of a decompression chamber, which was what I partly needed emotionally, but also undoubtedly creatively. It was good to have that time to think, well, actually, what was in that conversation that hits a note with something else I've heard, or how does that speak to what that person said? So there's a long distillation process, and then the writing is kind of hothousing. I'm, I, I can't remember exactly, um, but I sort of go a bit crazy. I go into my shed, literally a shed, um, and partly because of the rhythm, the individual sort of idiolect of this way of working, I work very quickly. Um, because once you're in that particular language of writing, uh, when it's going well, you can almost sort of put anything into it. And <laughs> obviously, it'll, it'll need redrafting, but a form will come out. So um, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think the first writing was as fast as probably around a month. Um, yeah, very quick. Uh, and then I took, some, I took some time away from it and then spent another couple of months redrafting. But the thing is, when you're writing for TV, there's a very practical aspect. I mean, you know, no one says to you, your book has to be 80 pages long or your play has to be an hour and a half. And this thing with TV is like, it's got to be 58 and a half minutes. <laughs> Which, you know, as all of the writers and the academics in the room will know, you know, there is a liberating aspect to form and to restraint, and undoubtedly that, although, you know, making you write quickly, is also um, a provocation to hopefully s some useful invention as well. Over here, John. Thanks. I was 12 when the Aberfan disaster happened, and um, I can remember the kind of silence in our house from a very big family. And um, it was on the television all the time, and I can still see the pictures. But my longest-lasting memory is there was an, um, a cartoon, I don't know if it was Giles, I think it was Giles, in the Daily Express. And it was a picture of the disaster, and then all around on the hills and out of cars were pictures of donkeys or asses with big um, ears and, and, and teeth and um, binoculars. And it said that the roads were closed and blocked up and motorways were chock-a-block with um, people going to view what had happened. Mm. But it was, it was wonderful to hear what you said about the local people going to help to dig out. But it's a bit like Grenfell as well. That awful disaster, yes, there's a community suffering there, but, and you want, to, you want to share your human feelings with them. But actually, having it in your front room, you wonder if you're a voyeur. 
mm. and, and, and what it's doing to so your what you said about writing it and trying to get absolutely the right um, tone um, resonated with me anyway mm. thank you mm. yeah thanks yeah no, thank you you know and and I mean and that influx of people to help I mean was extraordinary and actually very very quickly you know the roads were blocked and even the helpers were being turned away because the place was was just clogged but um it was interesting how physical that reaction was i mean i mean literally factories across south wales emptied um and you know as you've spoken about very powerfully you know the local people who were there first were on on that slurry when it was still moving one question uh, then in the middle john can i just ask you do you think your poem you know when you actually publish it is going to persuade you more and more people to rather safeguard the way we live in a, in a better way. Like, for instance, all disasters, and I think including Grenville, um, there were a lot of people warning about the dangers of cladding before yep. the fire, and there have been a number of examples of that around the world. Mm. So, you know, in terms of writing a poem like this, um, do you think the authorities <laughs> can take some lessons mm. and... Uh, Try to avoid, you know, uh, disasters, obvious disasters uh, that can that may occur in the future. Um, I'm not going to make any claims for poetry to be able to penetrate into the corridors of power. Oh, that it would. Um, I think certainly that's partly why I was so grateful that this was broadcast on TV. TV has a different reach, a different kind of reach. It's frustrating that no one can now see the film. It was on iPlayer for 30 days, and then it's gone, because I feel as a Exactly, in this area, it needs to be there. And as I said at the start, this was the main reason why in the end I said yes. I mean, I think for any writer, but especially if you're Welsh, to take on Aberfan, it just feels instinctively like something that perhaps you shouldn't do and is just inherent with risk. And the main thing that made me finally do it was exactly that. And it's interesting how often Aberfan has been mentioned in the conversation when Grenville is being spoken about as well. Um, not just by commentators, but by people involved in the Grenville community as well interestingly. So that's what you hope. I mean, yes, I think we still have a huge problem with what happens when our communities are allowed to be run by corporations. We've seen that in Bangladesh with the textile industry. We've seen it with cladding. Um, and at its root is a gross inequality and a widening wealth gap, a widening health gap. Um, and... Yes, I mean, it, it, it's interesting, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about freeing us from a European regulation. Well, you know what? A lot of that regulation saves lives, and we need it. I think we'll hold it there. We've worked over a lot of dark and somber stuff this morning, but there's, there's light and there's, there's brightness uh, as, as well, which Owen has brought to us, and it's, it's, it's in the work. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a work that, that can help to change attitudes and, and opinions, I think. Be good, good to think so. There are books outside if, you've, if you're interested, but let's thank Owen for a terrific reading and a great interview. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Writing North podcast recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. 
Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council event produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. New Writing New North. Writing New North. Writing North. You're listening to a podcast New by Writing New Writing North. North.